My name is Dr. Mark McCullough. I will be reading from the third canto of Dante's Inferno of his Divine Comedy, translated by Mark Musa. After my reading, I will briefly discuss what I see there. I am the way into the doleful city. I am the way into eternal grief. I am the way to a forsaken race. Justice it was that moved my great creator. Divine omnipotence created me, and highest wisdom joined me with primal love. Before me nothing but eternal things were made, and I shall last eternally. Abandon every hope, all you who enter. I saw these words spelled out in somber colors, inscribed along the ledge above a gate. Master, I said, these words I see are cruel. He answered me, speaking with experience. Now here you must leave all distrust behind. Let all your cowardice die on this spot. We are at the place where earlier, I said, you could expect to see the suffering race of souls who lost the good of intellect. Placing his hand on mine, smiling at me in such a way that I was reassured, he led me in into these mysteries. Here sighs and cries and shrieks of lamentation echo throughout the starless air of hell. At first these sounds resounding made me weep. Tongues confused, a language strained in anguish and with cadences of anger, shrill outcries and raucous groans that, gro that joined with sounds of hands. Raising a whirling storm that turns itself forever through that air of endless black, like grains of sand swirling when a whirlwind blows. And I, in the midst of all the circling horror, began, Teacher, what are these sounds I hear? What souls are these so overwhelmed by grief? And he to me, This wretched state of being is the fate of those sad souls who lived a life, but lived it with no blame and with no praise. They are mixed with that repulsive choir of angels, neither faithful nor unfaithful to their God, who undecided stood but for themselves. Heaven, to keep its beauty, cast them out, but even hell itself would not receive them, for fear the damned might glory over them. And I, Master, what torments do they suffer that force them to lament so bitterly? He answered, I will tell you in few words, these wretches have no hope of truly dying. And this blind life they lead is so abject, it makes them envy every other fate. The world will not record their having been there. Heaven's mercy and its justice turn from them. Let's not discuss them. Look and pass them by. And so I looked and saw a banner rushing ahead, whirling with aimless speed, as though it would not ever take a stand. Behind it, an interminable train of souls pressed on, so many that I wondered how death could have undone so great a number. When I had recognized a few of them, I saw the shade of the one who must have been the coward who had made the great refusal. At once I understood, and I was sure this was that sect of evil souls who were hateful to God and to his enemies. These wretched who had never truly lived, went naked and were stung again 
and stung again by the hornets and the wasps that circled them and made their faces run with blood and streaks. Their blood, mixed with their tears, dripped to their feet and disgusting maggots collected in the pus. And when I looked beyond this crowd, I saw a throng upon the shore of a wide river, which made me ask, Master, I would like to know who are these people and what law is this that makes those souls so eager for the crossing? as I can see, even in this dim light. And he, all this will be made plain to you as soon as we shall come to stop a while upon the sorrowful shore of Acheron. And I, with eyes cast down in shame, for fear that I perhaps had spoken out of turn, said nothing more until we reached the river. And suddenly, coming down towards us in a boat, a man of years, whose ancient hair was white, shouted at us, at us, Woe to you, perverted souls! Give up all hope of ever seeing heaven. I come to lead you to the other shore, into eternal darkness, ice, and fire. And you, the living soul, you over there, get away from all those people who are dead. But when he saw I did not move aside, he said, Another way, by other ports, not here shall you pass to reach the other shore. A lighter skiff there, then this must carry you. And my guide. Charon, this, this is no time for anger. It is so willed, there where the power is for what is willed. That's all you need to know. These words brought silence to the woolly cheeks of the ancient steersman of the livid marsh, whose eyes were set in glowing wheels of fire. But all those souls there, naked and despair, changed color, and their teeth, teeth began to chatter at the sound of his announcement of their doom. They were cursing God, cursing their own parents, the human race, the time, the place, the seed of their beginning and their day of birth. And altogether, weeping bitterly, they packed themselves along the wicked shore that waits for every man who fears not God. The devil, Aaron, with eyes of glowing coals, summoned them all together with a signal, and with an oar he strikes the laggard sinner. As in autumn, when the leaves began to fall, one after the other, until the branches witnessed to the spoil spread on the ground, so did the evil seed of Adam's fall drop from that shore to the boat, one at a time, at the signal, like the falcon to its lure. Away they go across the darkened waters, and before they reach the other side to land, a new throng starts collecting on this side. My son, the gentle master said to me, all those who perish in the wrath of God assemble here from all parts of the earth. They want to cross the river. They are eager. It is divine justice that spurs them on, turning the fear they have into desire. A good soul never comes to make this crossing. So the Quran grumbles at the sight of you. You see now what his words are really saying. He finished speaking, and the grim terrain shook violently. And the fright it gave me, even now in recollection, makes me sweat. Out of the tear-drenched land a wind arose, which blasted forth into a redding, reddish light. 
knocking my senses out of me completely, and I fell as one falls tired into sleep. So we're almost there. We're almost in hell. It's taken us a few cantos to get there. Canto three takes place in the vestibule where Dante and Virgil see the indecisive sinners, the indecisive damned. It's important to make that distinction between damned and sinners, as you'll see, since, well, since there are many sinners in the Divine Comedy. Um, those in purgatory are sinners, and they're, they are pur purging their sins. Uh, but here in hell, we see the damned. So Canto three introduces us into hell. So what I'd like to do in this discussion is make some comparisons among translators and point out some of the different decisions that they make. I think they're noticeable uh, in Canto three and uh, quite important. I'd like to then talk a little bit about the uh, history of um, the commentaries and some of the problems and difficulties and challenges and discussions and disagreements that have come up among uh, commentators about uh, some references here in Canto three, And uh, speaking about the, the, the sins of neutrality, uh, the, the concept of the contrapasso, which uh, is the way that Dante makes the image of the sinners and he captures it in this this image this um, this symbol of their sin we'll talk a little bit about that we'll talk about the figure of karen and that will lead us to consider how important uh for dante the sixth book of the Aeneid is for canto three um, it's the sort of the urtext for canto three and as i reread it this time, I recognize how how much he depends on that is Dante depends on his reading of Virgil's um, uh, description of Aeneas's trip to Hades, and how it, it just writes itself throughout the entire Canto Three. Also, take a look at T. S. Eliot's Wasteland um, and uh, who uh, uh, Part One: The Burial of the Dead, which uh, bases uh, one of its uh, most uh, famous images, the image of the mass of folk crossing the London Bridge and how that uh, is taken from this uh, this third canto here. Uh, so let's get started. And we might get started by looking at the beginning. The first uh, the lines of Canto 3 uh, describe the inscription above the gate of hell. And Musa has an interesting way of translating this, different from the other translators I took at, uh, that I took a look at. He translates uh, the first few lines as, I am the way into the doleful city, as if the gate itself is speaking with the eye. Um, Hollander, and, uh, Hollander and Mandelbaum take a different approach. Um, this, is, uh, this is Mandelbaum's translation. He's, he writes, through me the way to the city of woe, through me, the way to eternal pain. Through me, the way among the lost. Uh, compared to I am the way into the doleful city. I am the way into eternal grief. I am the way to a forsaken race. It's quite different. Also, um, oops, I just, I did, that wasn't Mandelbaum I just read. That is, that was Hollander. If I said it was Mandelbaum, this is Mandelbaum. Translation of the first few lines of Canto Three. Through me, the way into the suffering city. Through me, the way to the eternal pain. 
through me the way that runs among the lost. And I have to admit, I like, um, I like Mandelbaum here. Um, I, I really like this, through me the way that runs among the lost. The forsaken race itself may be a more literal translation of how Dante is uh, sort of putting in uh, the gate the words of the whole race, the whole Adam's whole race, which he'll mention later. Um, but um, but it, it's a little awkward sounding to me, and I, I really like uh, the way among the lost, or in um, in Mandel in uh, that's Hollander's, and then Mandelbaum's translation through me the way that runs among the lost. So that's really quite interesting. Now these next few lines, and by, and by the way, the, you'll see probably in your edition as well. Um, these are all all caps. So in the contemporary world, you know, it's like Canto three begins by yelling at us. Right? It's all caps. Um, and uh, since we don't have an original manuscript to compare this up against, um, the assumption is that the, the inscription on the gate mirrors the um, inscriptions that we might see in Rome, for example, above the arches, all in caps as well. And so Canto three attempts to, you know, through this, you know, through this like font and type to resemble an arch, a Roman arch. Uh, that that announces uh, itself, and there's some uh, some differences in translation here throughout uh, the, the, these lines, um, and we'll return to these lines here after I uh, point out another section that's important in terms of translation. Perhaps one of the most important um, poetic sections, the most important sort of uh, epic simile in all of Dante which is uh, the line, uh, starts at line 112. And this is the epic simile of the autumn leaves. And this is a crucial passage, not only poetically, but historically, and we'll see why um, a little bit later. But let me just uh, reread uh, the, the Musa line. He, he writes, as in autumn, when the leaves began to fall one after the other until the branches witnessed to the spoils spread on the ground, so did the evil seed of Adam's fall drop from that shore to the boat, one at a time, at the signal, like the falcon to its lure. The uh, Mandelbaum translation, as in the autumn leaves detach themselves, first one and then the other, till the bough sees all its fallen garments on the ground. Similarly, the evil seed of Adam descended from the shoreline one by one when signaled as a falcon called, will come. And then finally, the Hollander translation. Well, actually, not, not, not because I'm going to do the Longfellow as well. But let me read here the translation in Hollander. Just as in autumn, the leaves fall away, one and then another, until the bough sees all its spoil upon the ground. So the wicked seed of Adam fling themselves, one by one from shore at its signal, as does a falcon at its summons. Now compare all of these to the Longfellow translation, translation of 1866. Longfellow translates this passage as, as in the autumn time the leaves fall off, first one and then another, till the branch unto the earth surrenders all its spoils. In similar wise the evil seed of Adam throw themselves from that margin one by one, at signals as a bird unto its lure. 
Now this is where Longfellow is really strong as a translator. He seems to understand the way in which this epic simile works and the poetry of it. And just to remind, uh, remind you all that the epic simile is, of course, the comparison. So it has it's a it's formulaic in its approach. So we might say, just as so too, is the uh, uh, is the is the formula, comparing of two of of two persons or things or what what have you. And very often in the epic simile, um, as is the case here, the two images, the two the, the two images, the two things that are being compared are unlike one another. Um, there's a comparison to how they're like one another, but, but sort of fundamentally, they are sort of unlike one another. So in Homer, it's often the warriors who are fighting among the blood and gore, just as, you know, that the blood was on the ground, just as the river uh, is overrun in springtime and over, overcomes its banks. And so you've got this comparison between two unlike things you know the well they're like in so much that the, the quality of blood is like the the blood that overflows is like the water that overflows but when you compare the sort of natural bucolic world of river and spring it's quite a jarring comparison uh, with uh, two warriors on a battlefield so it's sort of unlike uh, the thing too so this is what gives the epic simile the just and as it's 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 sort of its power and and this is this section here the poetry is amazing um to compare leaves with um bodies you know and um just like those epic similes of old dante is suggesting that the picture here um of the leaves falling um one after the other um so too do these um sort of damned drop from the shore to the boat one at a time powerful stuff um, and, and extremely memorable and I'm sure as a translator this is really what you're you know you got your work cut out for you because um, you're 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 making the attempt to do Dante right you're also making the attempt to compete with other translators who have translated this passage in their own way so um, so I'm positive Musa and Mandelbaum and uh, Hollander are all reading each other. Now we're going to return to this passage a little later uh, because um, because all of this is found first in Virgil, and uh, and and so let's um, let's take a look uh, a little closer at this at the Canto Three, its action, uh, and some of these moments that are important, and then we'll return. Um, at the end here of this discussion, and um, and make some uh, make some comments about um, this passage as it relates to uh, to the Aeneid. So, when we last saw Dante in Canto Two, he was being told by Virgil to not be afraid and to not fear. In Virgil's words, those things that truly have the power to do only fear those things that truly have the power to do us harm of nothing else, for nothing else is fearsome. And so Virgil is telling Dante, have hope, because you have been called by the gracious ladies. This is heaven's decree. And we're going to see the power of heaven's decree here. But right at the beginning of Canto 3, we, we have this inscription um, over the over the, the gate. 
which leads to the vestibule that leads to hell itself. And he sees this inscription, and this inscription, as we've already seen, is quite powerful. And that line that many of us know without even having reading, read the, the, the poem, you know, abandon all hope ye who enter here, right? So abandon hope, you, you have no hope. Any, any, any soul, any damned soul that's, that sees these inscription, that sees the inscription has no hope. And yet Dante is a figure who, who does have hope. And so already, you know, he's being faced with uh, the emotion of, of fear uh, because he's losing his hope, because his hope, um, you know, normatively he would have, would have had no hope at this point. What's fascinating and quite frightening about the inscription is the inscription, which is the gate speaking in a sense personified to the soul that, that, that passes under the gate, is, is talking about how it is the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who has, uh, in a sense, created this gate of hell um, and created by the Trinity, um, who was moved by justice. And so we've got this idea of justice here and the justice of hell and the justice of, um, and justice as a kind of moving uh, the Trinity. So you Aristotelians and Thomists, you know, that this is kind of theologically uh, you know, blasphemy, right? I mean, you, th this is the un unmoved mover you're not supposed to move the unmoved mover and so it's dante's way of kind of personifying justice as having moved the unmoved mover just as itself moved um it, it's a force of nature in a sense that moved or in, influenced the move the unmoved mover to create to create hell so this we we, we go under this uh, uh, gate this this famous inscription and then uh, Virgil repeats to Dante, remember I told you this is a place where you, you must not be a coward. And um, this is a place where you see the suffering race uh, who have lost the good of intellect. And the, good, the loss of the good of intellect here is really those who have lost the, op the chance to ever be in the presence of the greatest good, of the... Of the of of the of God of the in in the beatific vision, and at this point Virgil will actually reassure Dante as he does many many times throughout the Divine Comedy. He reassures Dante, um, and then in the in here in the in the Musa translation leads him into those mysteries. Another, not to go back to translations, but that that word is variably translated. That line twenty one, here it's in Musa it's mysteries. Um, and in other translations, it's different, and uh, be interesting to see what yours, what yours has. So the first real encounter here uh, is with those who have sinned by way of their neutrality, and those who have not made a decision for good or evil. They are indecisive. They're it's like in the Bible says, they're the lukewarm, right? And God, it's a passage from Revelation, will spit out the lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. So this is this is really beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it's frightening and beautiful at the same time that Dante puts in the vestibule before you even get into hell. He says, here are 
the ones who could not make a decision on earth. They stood for nothing on earth. Um, and they're not even in hell because hell doesn't want them. Heaven, well, clearly heaven, heaven doesn't want them. Hell doesn't want them uh, because they would be afraid that, that the damned would, would somehow, you know, make light of or make fun of them and, and, um, and they would be an object of, of envy. Funny stuff, um, but also frightening stuff. And when you get the image here of the indecisive, it's 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 really a um, a paradigm for Dante's use of imagery uh, as he dramatizes the punishment of the damned, and we call this the the contrapasso, uh, which in Italian means um, means that the uh, the punishment of sin involves some kind of similarity or opposite of the sin itself. And the contrapasso is, is an Italian word which will actually be mentioned by Dante. And I'm breaking one of my rules here um, that he will mention later in the Inferno. Uh, he'll mention it in the Muses, his adherence. Um, in his, in his, uh, yeah, it's, it's 28. So 28 line 142 that Dante himself will, will use the word contrapasso to describe how the punishment of the damned fit the sin itself. So here with the, these indecisive or neutral parties or parties that these groups of folks who did not make decisions for good or bad, they are running without stopping um, and following a banner, right? So the running, the, the anxious running without ever stopping for a banner, of course, the irony here is that they, they didn't do such a thing in life. They did not follow any banner, as it, as it were, right? They didn't have a political party. They didn't take a side. They just sort of maybe sat on the sidelines. And so their punishment is the exact opposite of what they did on life, their contrapasso, their punishment. Um, and yet when you look at the banner itself, the banner has nothing on it. So the nothing of the banner is actually similar to their living uh, behavior, right? So they, they, they raced around after nothing. <laughs> so the flavor of the contrapasso for Dante is to mix both like and unlike materials within the punishment of the damned. Um, and again, I broke the rule because this is kind of explained, well, not so much explained, but the word is used in the 28th canto, which we'll, um, God willing, get to. Um, but I think it starts right here with the neutral angels. You get the picture of the likeness and unlikeness of their running after this banner. It'll be interesting to, to, to hear um, your reactions to, uh, to this image. There is a lot of ink that's spilt in the Hollander uh, commentary on whether or not the, the, these neutral angels and these indecisives are creations of Dante, pure creations of Dante, or he had traditions as well. And there's a, for so, some of you might be interested in that, you pick up the Hollander um, commentary and read about those possible um, 
precedences for the image of the indecisive. As I said, it's in Revelation, but um, there's also some other texts that Dante may have been familiar with where he would have been introduced to, to this category of, um, of, the, of, of damned soul. 